Hi, friends. How are we doing today? Thanks for coming to church. Thanks for those of you who are joining us online. We're thrilled you're here. We conclude today a three-part series we're calling Revive, in which we're examining three practices that I believe will revive your soul and restore your hope for the year ahead. Now, see, we found over the years as a community, when we make these practices part of our everyday lives, slowly but surely a change takes place within. We become the kind of people who naturally love God and love others. We, we, we begin to look more like Jesus. Now, the three practices are owning, partnering, and investing. We've looked at a different practice each week. And we consider these practices uh, are strategic anchors as an organization. Business leaders know what I mean when I use that language. While Capital Church may not be a business in the traditional sense, what we do is big business. Think of it as I explained it last week. Some organizations make widgets and gadgets. Some organizations make shareholders money. This organization makes disciples, people who are learning from Jesus how to live their lives. Two weeks ago, we talked about owning your faith, taking personal responsibility for your journey with Jesus. Last week, we looked at partnering. I made a case for cultivating spiritual friendships by devoting yourself to to fellowship as we experience life together. Now, this week, we'll talk about investing our time, talents, and resources as we serve others sacrificially. Before we dive in, Let's invite God to speak to us. Lord, in this moment, we turn our attention to you. As we hear your challenge today, make us receptive and responsive. Help us leave here eager to act. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Not long ago, I heard a story about a bloke who won big in Vegas. Get this. A Nevada resident, a Nevada resident gets laid off from his job, a job he held for decades. Took his wife out to dinner at a casino, wondering if it would be their last night out for a while. On the way out of the restaurant, he stops to play a slot machine and wins a million dollars. On a whim, he went back a couple weeks later to the same casino, to the same slot machine, and won $26 million. Now, hear me, friends. I'm not condoning gambling. But what the holy heck? You know the chances of really winning millions in Vegas? It is 121 times more likely that you will be struck by lightning. In other words, after you've been struck by lightning 120 times, you finally have the same odds at hitting the big jackpot at the casinos. Now, why the holy heck do I risk offending some of you by opening this weekend's message with the story about gambling? It's because today I'm going to talk to you about taking a bigger risk. It's what we might call the great gamble because there's a lot at stake. 
Your life, in fact. I'm going to invite you to put your life on the line for this wager. Look, I, I, I wouldn't be so bold left to my own devices, but it's actually Jesus who challenges you to take the bet. You see, he wants you to lose your life to find it. I base those words on a paradoxical truth spoken by Jesus in Matthew 20, or Matthew 16, verse 25. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever wants to save their life. For those of you who'd like to dive a little deeper into the text, you, sh- you should know that word once in Greek, its original translation conveys deliberate intentionality. Jesus says, if you have made up your mind that you are going to live your life to save your life, merely looking out for number one, living up to your potential to make your life more comfortable, more promising, more fulfilling, Jesus says, you will fail miserably. He says, you'll lose your life. He doesn't mean you'll die. He means you'll never live. See, this passage isn't about heaven and hell as spectacular as heaven will be. No, this passage is about this life. It's ironic. Selfishness makes its goal the pursuit of personal happiness, but it fails the moment it sets out. Disciples of Jesus who set their will merely to protect and preserve their lives throw their lives away. But disciples who attempt to give their lives away find out what it means to truly live. My friends, I hope this morning to convince you. Losers, keepers, finders, weepers. You got to lose your life to find it. You got to lose your life to find it. Believe it or not, thinking outside yourself, investing your time, talents, and resources in the lives of others is the only way to truly live. Scientific research supports this. In 1988, scholars at the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan followed the lives of 2,700 individuals over a period of 10 years to determine the effect of social relationships on life expectancy. The findings were later supported by research at Johns Hopkins, Yale, the University of California, Ohio State University, and the National Institute of Mental Health. Researchers found that regular volunteer work, more than any other specific activity, dramatically extended one's life. They found that volunteering your time improves cardiovascular health and boosts the immune system. This was especially true for men. Men who did no volunteer work were found to be two and a half times more likely to die over those 10 years than males who volunteered at least once per week. My friends, extensive scientific research hands us irrefutable evidence. Serve or die. (laughs) We're thinking about putting that on a t-shirt for our volunteers. But let me take you to a passage in the Bible that makes a surprisingly similar point. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here's the context. The apostle Paul wrote a letter to a young minister named Timothy. Paul left the young leader the task of pastoring the church at Ephesus in his absence. Paul's Paul's letters to Timothy in the New Testament offer instruction on how to deal with the problems he faces in that church. Well, one major problem 
was the care of widows. See, in the ancient world, if, if widows didn't have family, they were destitute. In some cultures, they faced two options, prostitution or starvation. Thankfully, followers of Jesus led the way in caring for widows. But apparently, there were some widows who were taking advantage of the system. Now, Paul describes such a woman, saying in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That's a startling description of a self-centered person. She's alive. She's breathing. She's interacting with people. She's living, but she's not really living because she's only living for herself, her passions, her pleasure, her profit. And according to Paul, that's not really living. In recent years, pop culture has grown more interested in zombies In sci-fi horror genre, zombies are the living dead, creatures who live merely to suck the life out of other humans. Well, if what Paul says is true, everywhere we go, we are surrounded by the living dead. I see dead people. (laughs) This afternoon, when you go to the grocery store, they'll be there. When you drive back onto campus, they'll be there. They'll be there Monday at the office. They'll be, they might be lying next to you when you wake up tomorrow morning. They might be staring you in the face when you look in the mirror. According to scripture, a self-centered life is no life at all. That's why Jesus says, lose your life to find it. It's counterintuitive and might take a little faith But Jesus says you've got to lose your life to find it. Then he asked, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now, of course, you can never gain the whole world. But even if you could, what good would it be if you're not really living? Jesus wasn't kidding. Losers, keepers, finders, weepers. And friends, this theme is woven throughout Scripture. God longs for us to experience the joy of an others-focused life. And if we don't, we won't. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. Instead of looking out for old number one, instead of obsessing over awesome, how awesome people think you are, Paul says, think about others. Paul says, disciples of Jesus should display a disposition that says, it's not about me. When I'm socializing with friends, instead of dominating the conversation with talk of my family, my hobbies, my problems, my vacation plans, I need to make sure there's mutuality to the conversation. When I come home from an exhausting day of work, instead of automatically assuming that my needs should drive the evening's agenda for my family, I should consider their day, their needs, because it's not about me. The world doesn't revolve around me. Selfish ambition in Greek is the word eretheia. We can define it as the excessive pursuit of one's own advantage and interests. It's about jockeying for position doing whatever you need to do to get on top maybe in your career maybe in your social circle a man or woman with selfish ambition asks a recurring question even if they rarely utter it aloud what's 
in it for me? And the key word in that question is me. A disposition of selfish ambition is all about me, my, and I. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting your needs met, as Paul will show us in a moment. The problem with selfish ambition is it's an attitude that operates with the principle, me first. And I'm telling you, fewer things will infect a culture of a family or a team or a church like an attitude of me first. It deteriorates trust. It spawns an environment in which everybody's looking over their shoulder because someone's out to outdo them. But imagine what would happen if for six months, every follower of Jesus around the world lived their lives saying, it's not about me. What if for six months, every follower of Jesus developed an attitude of serving? Heck, let's say we're just us. What if every disciple of Jesus in our capital community asked a different question? Instead of, what's in it for me? What about, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I love? How can I make your job easier? How can I make your night smoother? How can I meet your needs? Said the husband to the wife who truly felt loved. How can I meet your needs? Asked the Christian to her co-worker who was drowning in work and desperately in need of a life preserver. I'm telling you, you're going to lose your life to find it. If you did, how would that change our workplaces? How would that change our church? How would that change our marriages? Back to verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. See, in Philippians 2, Paul associates selfish ambition with vain conceit. And friends, they usually go hand in hand. I, I prefer the old English term for it, vainglory. One scholar, Rebecca de Young, offers this definition. She says, Vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. Vainglory is an appetite for applause. Vainglory is an unhealthy yearning to be well-known, well-liked, well-regarded. Vainglory obsesses over optics. It's about looking smart, looking spiritual, looking honorable. Now, whether or not you're really smart, spiritual, or honorable, that's less important to vainglory. Vainglory prioritizes perception management. It's always seeking to enhance its image. Vainglory loves the spotlight. It wants to be the center of attention at every party and every gathering. Vainglory relishes in public praise and accolade. Vainglory wants to appear to have the cleanest house, the the brightest kids, the greenest lawn, the most popular and interesting friends. But Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Paul isn't saying we need to regard everyone as smarter, prettier, or more important than we are. He's talking about how we care for them, the way we consider their needs. He says in verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, Paul assumes we'll develop healthy boundaries. Paul assumes we'll take care of ourselves. And my friend, if you have trouble standing up for yourself or speaking up for yourself, balance for you may need to tilt in the other direction. Maybe you need to take responsibility for yourself and for your needs. Grace to you if you do. 
But let's be honest. Most of us have no trouble making it about us. It's what we do. God help us. Paul continues this thought in verse 5 as he writes in your relationships with others have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross get this after challenging his friends to live selflessly Paul points to the example of King Jesus who gave up his rights and gave up his life so you and I could live. And friends, you've got to understand, when Jesus went to the cross, he, he didn't stop being God. He showed us who God really is. He's a gracious God who makes our problem his problem. Humanity turned from God, but rather than turning from us, God became human to teach us how to live and to bear the burden and pay the price for, for the world's evil. N.T. Wright remarks, the decision to become human and go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross. This decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. He says this is what it meant to be equal with God. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this is the true meaning of who God is. He's the God of self-giving love. My friends, that's the God you're dealing with. That's, that's the God you're praying to. That's the God you're angry with. That's the God you're trusting or distrusting. And that's the God who's asking you to serve. The God we worship is not an egotistical God who makes it all about him. He is a God of selfless sacrifice who shows his love with an exclamation point by pouring himself out. Now, that puts servanthood and self-importance in perspective, doesn't it? Paul wants us to adopt this self-giving love of King Jesus as our modus operandi, our standard operating procedure at church, at work, at home, at Home Depot. Many of us in this room and watching online today would call ourselves followers of Jesus. But are you really following in his footsteps? Are you really tracing your life around the pattern that he set for you? If someone observed your life from the outside, would they call you a servant of others? Would your spouse call you a servant? What about your roommate? My friend, if your aim is greatness, consider the wisdom of Andy Stanley who says the value of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away. How much are you giving away? What are you doing with what God's given you? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your talent? What are you doing with your resources? And my friend, as I ask you this, don't think legalistically. Think creatively. God is handing you an opportunity to participate in something eternal. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. Remember, you've got to lose your life to find it. How does God want to leverage who you are to make 
this world a better place? How does God want you to leverage who you are to bring up there, down here, so that he'll, his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven? Leaders, if you're gifted to lead people, what are you leading them to do? Get rich? That's interesting, but it's not eternal. How can you leverage your leadership skills for something bigger? I'm not saying you need to leave your company. You probably don't. But should you look at it differently? Should you lead differently? And how could God use your leadership inside, outside the corporate world in order to change the whole world? Maybe you're a college student beginning the new semester. What might God do through you on campus? What might God be saying to you about the trajectory of your career as you determine your major, as you select electives, as you use your free time? Or consider your personality. I know some of you are good at making money, but but others are good at making friends. Maybe you're especially talented at loving people and making them feel loved. Oh, how might God use you in your neighborhood? How might God use you in this church to brighten someone's day and help them to know they're welcome? Maybe you're a good listener. And my dear friend, you are surrounded by people who desperately need somebody to talk to. Yeah, you got to think big, but you should also think small because God is interested in us being faithful in the small things too. One time when our friend Wayne Grace was in town speaking at our weekend services, I took him to lunch after our Sunday gatherings. With years of ministry experience in countless churches around the country and decades of serving as a university president in Southern California, he made an observation. He said, Troy, capital is filled with an unusually high percentage of gifted and talented people. Hey, yeah? You feel that? It's encouraging, right? But if it's true, it's also a little intimidating. Because Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. We often paraphrase it. To whom much is given, much is required. Friends, some of you have at your fingertips a world-class intellect, well-honed management skills, a network of friends and partners. What are you doing with them? Are you squandering them on your kingdom? How might God want you to invest your time, talents, and resources in the days ahead? Maybe he wants you to make a dent in global poverty. Maybe he wants you to tutor a child who's fallen behind her classmates. Maybe he wants you to serve in a homeless shelter. Maybe he wants you to teach English to a refugee. Maybe he wants you to take some of your hard-earned income and invest it in his kingdom, which has a greater return than the best stock tip or startup company in the world. Maybe God is tugging at your heart to do something even bigger this year. I think one of the most powerful examples of love is when a family opens their home to fostering or adopting children. Look, it's not for everyone, but what an incredible ministry of Jesus to take a child without a home and receive them into yours with open arms. 
Christians. Many families in our community have done this and are doing this. Well done. You're changing the world. Several people in our community have a passion for loving kids with special needs. Oh, it's hard to imagine a more potent display of Christ's love. (laughs) Well done. You're changing the world. And perhaps without knowing it, you're discovering what it means to truly live because in the process of losing your life, you're finding it. Look, I know some of you balk at any talk of God using you as a leader or God using you to do anything significant. You just dismiss it. That's, that's for them, not for me. I'm nobody. I don't have talent. This is for somebody else. Look, if that's you, I, I want you to listen carefully to something I think I heard God say to me about you yesterday afternoon. My friend, God, God doesn't want me to back off this talk of you being a leader. He wants to heal you of insecurity so he can work through you to do something bigger than you. Look, look, you may look at your life and think of yourself as a loser. Well, good news. That's the life he wants you to lose. To find a new one through which he'll work wonders. You, even you, who thinks you, you've got nothing to give. And I'm speaking from experience here. God can do a lot with a little. Lose your life to find it. And what about here at Capitol? What can you do to invest your time, talents, and resources within our church community? <laughs> Have we been guilty of coming to church with a consumeristic mentality? We come to be inspired. We come to be served. We come to be fed. And we're dissatisfied when we're not. Now, of course, you need to find a community where you can be inspired, where you can grow, where you can find spiritual friendship. Of course. But the point is, friends, we're not Nordstrom's. According to the New Testament... We're less like a business and more like a family. And friends, I've seen God do great things in a church where people see themselves as brothers and sisters in family, in a family who serve one another. Maybe God wants you to lead a small group to create an environment for spiritual friends. Maybe God wants you to serve coffee. Maybe God wants you to serve at the Christian Center of Park City. Maybe God's calling you to serve in our kids' ministry. I'm telling you, it's one of the most powerful ways to leave an imprint on eternity. I will never forget the gift I was given by kids ministry volunteers who served me growing up. I could tell you about Susan and Richard and Kim and Julie. I could tell you about how they taught me at an early age that I could trust my life. I could entrust my life to King Jesus. And friends, I did. What they taught sank deep into my soul and dramatically changed the trajectory of my life. I could tell you about Sharon. Sharon had no formal Bible training. Sharon was a mother of two kids who worked in finance. But to this day, I remember the Bible verses that I memorized in her Sunday school classes. You see, at ages seven, eight, nine, Sharon told me about the God whom she was learning to trust 
And she inspired me to do the same. I remember at that age kneeling beside my bed at night, crying my eyes out in fear, but then opening my little children's Bible to the verses she showed me. And as a little boy, I met God at my bedside. He proved himself trustworthy to me in my darkest days. But friends, I would not have had those experiences without Sharon speaking into my life. Now here at Capitol every week, volunteers teach our kids those same truths. And there are many of you in this room, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. My friends, do not underestimate the power of your influence in the lives of our children. Sure, the influence of a parent is important. No one will have more influence over a child than mom or dad. But studies have shown the powerful impact of other adults in a child's spiritual journey. I'm telling you, truth sounds different when it comes from someone other than mom or dad. And many of the kids we reach don't have someone at home regularly pointing them toward God. And that's why we need you. Maybe God's calling you to be that someone. And friends, I'm not saying this because I need your help. I'm saying this because you need your help. If you want to experience the abundant life promised by King Jesus, you've got to lose your life to find it. You've got to lose your life to find it. I'm, I'm telling you, there's nothing like the feeling of participating in God's work in the world. There's nothing like it. I get it. Life's full of a lot of great experiences. There's nothing quite like the feeling of finding love. There's nothing quite like the feeling of of cradling your newborn baby. Hey, there's nothing like the feeling of jumping out of an airplane, which I have no interest in doing. Yeah. Yeah. There there may be different feelings. There, there, There may even be better feelings, but I'm telling you there's nothing like the feeling of being used by God to bring up there down here and some of you know what I'm talking about you know what it's like to be used by God to mend a broken heart to, to, to restore a broken marriage you know what it's like to be used by God to make a child feel loved even better to teach her how much God loves her you know there's nothing like the feeling of being used by God as he brings love and mercy and justice to our world there's nothing like it in 2006 neuro, neuroscientist Jorge Mole and Jordan Grothman from the National Institutes of Health identified that the pleasure centers of the brain, the ones that respond to food and sex, also light up when people think about giving to others. As my 20-year-old once said to me when she was four, that's a little bit funny and a little bit scary. You know what it means? It means God has hardwired you for generosity. We, we just have to live that way. I have some friends who, because of some seriously hard work, came into some money. And you know what they did? They turned around and gave a lot of it away. They gave to people in need. They, they gave to people who didn't deserve it. But they gave it intentionally with joy under the direction of God's spirit because apparently they deemed the wager was worth the risk. How does God want you to serve? How does God want you to give? Now my hunch is this investment will look different for each person in this room. We all have different gifts and passions. We're all in different spaces of life. 
And for the resident who, who works 90 hours a week, rarely sees her husband, rarely sees her own bed, volunteering one evening each week at the homeless shelter may not only be unrealistic, it may be cataclysmic. Look, how you serve may look different than how I serve. And how you serve may look different in different seasons. But God calls all of us to give back. He calls us to give our time, talents, and money. And here's the key. He asks us to do so sacrificially. First John 3.16 reads, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. True love gives True love serves. True love sacrifices. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We often think of love in theoretical terms. We say, sure, I'd take a bullet for my brother. Sure, I'd lay down my life for him. But let's get practical. Are you willing to give up an afternoon? Are are you willing to live on less so someone else can have more? Are you willing to show up a little earlier, stay a little longer, work a little harder? Look, I don't know what your investment in Christ's kingdom will look like, but make no mistake about it, the kind of investment that God is asking of us, it's not like a hobby that can be done whenever we have time. God calls us to lay down our lives for others. What's he calling you to give? God, I think God wants to do something unique in our community this year. As he pours out his spirit on us, I think think he wants to change us. You know, the, the... book of Acts, particularly Acts 2, gives us a little case study of what it looks like when God's Spirit's poured out on a bunch of people. And you can look it up yourself, Acts 2, verse 42 and following. Here's what we see. The people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to fellowship, koinonia. They devote themselves to sharing and giving and serving. Oh, does that sound familiar? Owning, partnering, investing. Friends, I believe that God wants us to cultivate a culture of generosity at capital by the power of His Spirit. We hope to inspire the people of our community to find joy investing their time, talents, and resources in what God's doing in the world. I mean, think about it. What if we never had to worry about having enough volunteers because our our people long to serve one another? Well, what if our local ministry partners who serve the poor day in and day out could always depend upon the people of the capital community to give and go and do and serve without any desire for recognition? Well, what if we moved from being simply spiritual consumers to spiritual contributors, as Craig Rochelle puts it? I think the church in the West is filled with too many pew potatoes to use the words of the late Dallas Willard. As church leaders, we long for this shift deep within our bones. We pray for the spirit of generosity to pervade all of our relationships. And that's what I want to pray right now. Lord, by the power of your spirit, I pray 
that my friends here will catch a vision of what it's like to live generously. May you give them a taste of of the joy and excitement of allowing you to work through them to lift someone's spirit, to mend a broken heart, to to help a a family member forgive, to show a child his worth, or or speak timely truth to a friend who's on the brink of self-destruction. Help them, Lord. Help all of us to see how you might leverage our passions and personalities to bring heaven on earth. Maybe you'll use their past to help someone heal their present. Maybe you'll use their pain to help help someone find hope and healing and wholeness. Lord, I pray today that you use this message to inspire people to pray, to inspire people to give, to inspire people to serve. May they may, may the days in the days ahead may they experience the elation of joining you in what you're doing in the world. And when they do, may they never look back. May they live the rest of their lives, giving their lives away. We pray this today in the name of King Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom that's come and is still coming. Amen. Okay, I want to give you a little homework for the week. Here's your first assignment. I want you to identify the the five people closest to you and find meaningful ways to serve them. Think about this. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul prays that we might overflow with love. Think about it. If you're overflowing with love, then the people you're closest to will get doused first, right? If if they aren't getting saturated with love, you may not be as full of love as you think. I don't know what you're full of. <laughs> question, question. Why is it often easier to love the people we work with than the people we live with? Why is it often easier to leapfrog over the people closest to us to love someone just a little further away? Maybe it's because the people further away didn't disappoint us. Maybe it's because the people further away didn't wound us. Often the hardest people to love are the ones nearby. So, I'm going to encourage you to start with the people closest to you. Start there and work outward. What about your roommate? What about your brother or sister? What about your spouse? What about your children? Parents, do you find it easier to be compassionate, kind, and patient with someone else's kids? And not your kids? Identify the people closest to you, even if they're grumpy, even if they're obnoxious. Okay? Second assignment. Keep your eyes peeled. You heard that expression? Probably not, because it's weird. That's an old expression. It means keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open for opportunities to serve, for opportunities to love. And better still, ask God to show you. This is how it works. Boy, I just want, oh, I want you to catch the bug for this. Because if if you keep your eyes peeled, you have this relationship with God. Here's what I recommend. Before you walk into any room, before you go into a grocery store, before you come to church, before you go to the office, before you go wherever you go, ask God a question. Lord, help me to see where you're working and how you want me to join you. Keep my eyes peeled for me, Lord. Help me to see. 
And then here's what happens. You keep your eyes peeled. Miracles start. You have a conversation with someone. You're like, what the holy heck? What just happened? I felt like God used me to encourage that person or point them to, to him or let them see that they are loved by you and by God. And God just works through you. And you're like, it almost, it almost feels magical. It's like you're an avenger or something. Oh, if only you could catch the bug for this and you start doing this in every room you walk into. Friends, that's how we're called to live. Just walking the earth, participating in what he's doing in the world. And it's so much fun. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you a secret about this. You'll get more work done if you do this. It's my experience. You don't need to worry about distracting you. Oh, yeah, we need to have boundaries and this and that. Sure, sure, sure. We've talked about that. That's not, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about opening our eyes to see where God's working. So keep your eyes peeled. Here's a third assignment. Serve someone who can't serve you. You know, you know who might be easier for you to serve? Rich people. You know who else might be easier for you to serve? People who make really good chocolate chip cookies. Serve someone who can't serve you. Why? It'll keep your ego in check, if nothing else. But that's who God's called us to serve to, to the utmost. Let, let's lay down our lives for people. Um, and finally, I'm going to encourage you to serve someone at Capital. Like some of you have been coming here a long time and, and you're not serving in any capacity within our church. You just come and you receive and then you go. And, and look, this is a shame-free zone, but I'm going to challenge you here. That, that's how you make our church your church. Right? Serving on a team, leading a group, loving a kid, joining our welcome team so, so you can let God use you to, to make our church the friendliest place in Utah so that everyone who comes experiences God's love the moment they walk in the door. That sounds interesting to me. That sounds eternal to me. Oh, I'm going to challenge you. Oh, I'm going to challenge you. Serve somewhere in our capital community. If you, you want to know more about serving, you can fill out a connection card in the seat back in front of you, drop in one of the drop boxes near the doors. You can, you, you can do this online on our website. Look for opportunities to serve. You might want to have a dialogue with one of our team members about places and ways you can serve. That's great too. You can always talk to us at info at capitalchurch.com is a great way to start an email conversation if you'd rather do it later this week. And, and, and hear me, friends. If, if you're joining us today and you're not a part of Capital, uh, you're joining us online and you, you don't regularly worship with us, for all of you, I'm going to challenge you, go back and do this in your church too. Hmm? Join God in what he's doing in the world. Stand with me. Here's a verse for the week. Matthew 16, verse 25. We read it a little earlier. The, the image on the screen and the graphic that follows will be available for you to download from our website, so be watching for them. We'll upload them to our, our website and our social media accounts. And, and as always, if you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be people here at the front to pray for you as the, the, our gathering ends. Um, and if you're, you're watching this online or 
or you want to do this through the week, always send us an email, care at capitalchurch.com. Friends, here's what I want to pray for all of you today. May you find life by laying down your life for the people around you. Thanks for coming. Grace and peace.